Welcome to Good Friday at Calvary Chapel. Why the cross? The image is from the film The Passion of the Christ. Not a perfect movie by any means. There are things that Mel Gibson just got wrong and other places where he relied upon things that were traditional rather than biblical. But the images of torture and the portrayal of Christ's execution, what what critics at the time and, and ever since have referred to as violence porn, horrifically accurate. But even if it were drawn out into real time, even if it were drawn out to a full day, the late night beating, the early morning scourging, the six hours of agonizing on the cross with thorns in his head, blood pouring from the wounds, gasping for air, still only hints at the real wrath that Jesus suffered as darkness fell over the earth. Someone said to me this week, doesn't it make sense, doesn't it seem somehow horribly right that Jesus was executed in the most brutal way imaginable because that's the closest that humanly we we can get to glimpsing the real torment that he experienced that afternoon. The, the torment is billions upon billions upon billions of eternities in hell all came crashing over him. And of course, we've talked a lot about that in recent weeks. The question I want to get into tonight is, why? Why don't we pray as we turn to God's Word? Lord, we're privileged beyond words to stand before you, cleansed, forgiven, and more than that, righteous because of the cross. And yet it confounds us How do you love us so much? Why did you do that? And and, and Lord, what, what did you do? I'm sure just as we barely glimpse the enormity of your suffering, we're only beginning to understand the benefit. But Lord, I prayed that during our time we'd come to understand a little more draw a little closer to you. I know we can't be loved anymore by you, but perhaps, Lord, in understanding, we could could surrender a little bit more to you. Would you use this time? In Jesus' name. Why the cross? Some of you are saying, Patrick, that's an easy one. That's John 10.10. He came that we could have life and that more abundantly. Come on, man, ask us something hard. And of course, that's true. And most of you know that's true. And most of you here have benefited from that truth. The truth that on the cross, Jesus traded places with us. He took the punishment that we deserve, the punishment for our sin, so we could have all of the mercy that we didn't deserve. Forgiveness, eternity with him. But without denying the truth of John 1010, the precious, gracious, life-giving truth of the gospel. Let me ask a question. 
What do you do with 1 John 3.8 that tells us, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, for this reason that Jesus came, that he might destroy the works of the devil? Well, why does that have to have anything to do with it, Patrick? It's the same thing we just read, just with different words. John is saying the same thing in his letter that he's saying in the gospel, isn't he? He's just going back to why we need the new life that Jesus purchased for us at the cross. Satan deceived Eve. Eve tripped Adam. Satan seduced Adam and Eve, the first humans, into sin, and all of creation has been suffering ever since. Satan's scheme, his machinations, if you will, in the garden, brought sin into God's creation, chaos into the universe, death into the world, and and took our relationship, our intimacy with God out of our lives. And everything would have stayed that way forever. We would have been separated from God, left to our sin, destined to hell forever, except, except Jesus came to undo all of that. Jesus undid all of that at the cross. The cross was the means by which he turned back sin and death. The cross was the mechanism by which Jesus remedied the works of the enemy. And again, I say no argument. No argument. At the cross, Jesus absolutely did all of that. And we rightly celebrate that tonight. And this Sunday. And every Sunday. And every day. We celebrate the victory, the peace, the life that we have in Christ. At the cross, Jesus redeemed our souls for eternity. Those of us who have placed our trust in Him, those of us who have said yes to Him. At the cross, Jesus rendered death irrelevant and restored our relationship with God forever. My thing is, I think He did even more than that. At the cross, Jesus destroyed the work of the devil. John says so. Triumphed over him. That's the title of tonight's message, Triumph. I want to talk a little bit about that. First of all, let's make sure we're on the same page. When we talk about Satan, who are we talking about? Not a mythological figure with cloven hooves and horns and a tail and a pitchfork and bad breath, right? When we talk about Satan, we're talking about a super angel. Scripture talks about a group of angels created by God to love and serve. We get that from Hebrews chapter 1. The angels were created to love and serve, just as we are, by the way. But a group of them decided they didn't want to love and serve. They became proud, decided they could be self-reliant, get by on their own strength, serve themselves instead of others, worship their work instead of God's majesty. Sounds disturbingly familiar. Led by Satan, he was called Lucifer at the time, a third of the angels rebelled against God. God responded, Revelation 12.9, by casting them out of heaven, at which point they decided to sow their hate and discontent here on earth, here in God's creation. Instead of loving and serving humanity, they decided to corrupt and destroy us. They couldn't defeat God, but by pulling us into their sin, they could and did deny God worship, deny us our relationship with God and rob God of His glory. They could do that. They have done that. 
Satan has done a great job. Accomplished, I think, more than he he set out to. By by pulling us into his sin, he, he in effect took God's place in our hearts and in this world. Jesus himself says so. John 12, 31, Jesus says Satan's the ruler of this world. Is he still subject to God's authority? Yes, but for all intents and purposes, practically speaking, Satan is the ruler of this creation. Paul says the same thing. And we see that, don't we? We see Satan's hand everywhere. Physically, he comes against us with illness and oppression. Morally, he's still enticing us to sin thousands of years after the garden. Still seducing us. Intellectually, he draws us into error and arrogance. Politically, he accuses and divides. Economically, he subjugates and oppresses. Spiritually, he blinds and deceives. See his hand everywhere. He's powerful. He's wicked and oh so destructive. He is, quite simply, very, very good at what he does. And almost from the time he began doing it, God said, enjoy it while it lasts because your season is going to end. Genesis 3.15, we talk about it so often. I'm drawn to it because it's the first prophecy in Scripture. It's God's promise almost as soon as humanity fell, as, as, as the sound of creation crashing was, was still echoing throughout the universe. God spoke to Satan and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's you in those verses? It's Satan. Who's the seed of the woman? We call him Jesus. That's a prophecy of the cross. That's a prophecy in which God says, yes, Jesus whom I will send to redeem humanity, will be bruised. He will suffer. But Satan, you're going to be crushed. Jesus will triumph. Now for thousands of years, Satan did his best to keep that prophecy from coming about, which which astonishes us a little bit, because God is God. Does Satan really think that he can overcome God's plan? Satan, a created being, thinks he could be like God? Well, if you think you can be like God, then why not think you can thwart God's plans and purposes? If you think that you can be like the Most High, is it really too much to believe that you can thwart God's plan of salvation? And so for 40 centuries of Old Testament history, we see these two, these two, two storylines unfold in parallel. On the one hand, as we make our way through the pages of the Old Testament, we see God revealing progressively, gradually, more and more of Jesus' identity. From Genesis, he's going to be a man. And by the end of Genesis, he's going to come out of the nation Israel. And he's going to come out of the tribe Judah. Then we learn from the family of David. And then through the prophets, we learn the place and the time and other details. But even as God is is unfolding this progressive revelation, Satan is trying harder and harder and harder at every step along the way to prevent the birth of this Redeemer. 
by sending the Nephilim into the world to corrupt humanity's bloodline, to make it impossible for a sinless one to be born. Sending famine against Israel, corruption into Israel's kings, conquest against the nation from the north and the south, genocide we read about in the book of Esther. And even once Jesus is born, Satan persists in trying to end his ministry. As soon as he's born, Satan says, hey, he's just a baby. I can take a baby. (laughs) I'll just nudge Herod a little bit, and Herod will do the heavy lifting. Herod will deal with them for me. Herod will kill him. We talked about this on Christmas Eve. Naturally, Herod fails. But Satan tried. And he tried again, I'm sure, during the first 30 years of Jesus' life. He, hey, he's just a kid. I can take a kid on. And how does Satan do that? We, we don't know much about the first three decades of Jesus' life, but I'm sure that Satan was busy trying to in, induce Jesus to sin. And then it doesn't take much for a young man to sin. doesn't take much to get a young man in his teens or 20s to to go the way of the flesh, to follow his pride. And Satan in his mind is thinking as soon as, as soon as that happens, as soon as Jesus prioritizes himself even a little bit, as soon as he fails to keep the law in the slightest, smallest, most minute detail, then I've got him because when that happens, he can't do what he came to do. He can't be the perfect sacrifice. He can't die on the cross. He can't redeem humanity. The funny thing is, we don't know much about those 30 years. The only thing we do know, apart from some childhood episodes, is that he did keep the law perfectly. How do we know? A couple different ways, but most clearly at his baptism, Matthew 3, verse 17, God the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was still spotless before God the Father. And he remains so. Immediately after his baptism, Satan steps up his game and he says, well, okay, he's an adult now. He's beginning his ministry, but he's still a man. I can take on a man. He's fully God, Satan. I bet he's a man. And so out in the wilderness, he offers Jesus everything that a man could want. He offers him the world. Just one condition, Jesus, you have to worship me but then you get everything you want. You get to have all of the kingdoms of the world, and you don't even have to go to the cross. Just give me a little worship. Right there, by the way, proves that Satan functionally, practically, is right now the God of this world, because Jesus doesn't say, the kingdoms of the world aren't yours to give. If I say to you, hey, there's a Corvette parked in the driveway across the street from my house, which happens to be true, You can have it. You're going to say, Patrick, if it's yours to give, why isn't it parked in your driveway? The keys are in it. You can have it. You're still going to look at me and you're going to say it's a setup. And when Satan said to Jesus, hey, all of the kingdoms of the world are yours, it was a setup. But it wasn't because they weren't Satan's to give. It was because that wasn't the way that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit had decided before they laid the foundation of the world together that things were going to go. They had decided, they had conspired together that Jesus 
would enter into his kingdom by way of the cross. But that wasn't the end of Jesus' temptation. At the end of the 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus continues his ministry, but the temptation continues. Religious leaders tempted him. They kept trying to provoke him to violate the law in some way, shape, or form, find something to accuse him of. His family tempted him. His half-brothers urged him, hey, go to Jerusalem. If you're the Messiah, go and tell everybody. It wasn't the time that God had ordained for that. But his brothers didn't care. Hey, it's a no-lose situation for us. If you're the Messiah, then we get to bask in your glory sooner. If you're not, then people will stop making fun of us. His family tempted him. His disciples tempted him. At one point, he has to say to Peter, one of his closest friends, get behind me, Satan. Why? Peter was tempting him, urging him, skip the cross. Not so, Lord. Far be it. Tempting him the same way that Satan tempted him. And you're saying to me, Patrick, we all know that. No one here but us believers. What's your point? My point is, despite opposition from every side, friends, family, human foes, even Satan himself, Jesus continued to live a perfect life. So at the cross, Colossians chapter 2, and you might want to turn there in your Bible. We're hopping around tonight. But these are verses that you might want to underline if you're, if you're still using an analog Bible and you take some notes in the margin. Or even if you're all electronic, most electronic Bibles, you can drop in some notes and some highlighting. This is where you might want to write down a few things to remember and not forget. Because in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, Even though we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, I'm paraphrasing, even though we were sinners in every way possible, Jesus has made us alive together in Him. He's forgiven all our trespasses. He's wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, all the charges against us. He's taken them out of the way. He's nailed them to the cross. Having studied the crucifixion in some detail on Sundays recently in our Life of Christ study, you remember the sign that was nailed above Jesus. The sign that the centurion would have carried down the Via Dolorosa and then nailed on the cross so that anybody walking by, anybody who was interested, could see the charges against Jesus or anyone who was accused, anyone who was convicted, anyone who had been sentenced to death. They could see this was his crime. In Jesus' case, he said he was king of the Jews. But what does Jesus say? He turns it around. And, and, and Paul says that, that Jesus nailed the charges themselves to the cross. What charges? All of the charges against all of us forever. Jesus put every accusation ever made against us on a sign and nailed it to the cross. He put our guilt to death. But not only that, keep going. Colossians 2.15 Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And that's where we get our message title. Because there it is. Just, just when Satan thinks he's pulled it out. Just when think. Satan thinks he's finally pulled it off. He's defeated Jesus. 
He's thwarted God's plan of redemption once and for all. Jesus turns the tables. The great exchange, C.S. Lewis calls it, the great switcheroo. Instead of Jesus being defeated at the cross, he triumphs over Satan and his angels. How so? Four ways at least. What's Satan's best weapon? Don't think too hard. It's, you're close. It's our guilt. Satan's an accuser, right? That's a label Jesus applies to him. It's an accusation that Jesus makes against him. Satan's an accuser. And to accuse well, he's got to have something to accuse me of, something that'll stick. As, as long as Satan can point at my sin, as long as he can call out my guilt, as long as he can say, hey, look at Patrick, he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, he's a slanderer, he's a slacker, he's a liar, he's an addict, he's a thief, as long as Satan can accuse me of those things and deep down I know that they're true, he's got me. As long as Satan can call out my guilt, all I can say is, you're right. You're a sinner, Patrick. You're right. You've rebelled against God. You're right. In your sin, God can't have a relationship with you anymore. You're right. You might as well keep sinning. You're right. <laughs> as long as his accusations get traction, as long as they have some basis in reality, Satan has power over me. But at the cross, Jesus took that weapon away from Satan. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed him. When Jesus replaced my guilt, our guilt, with righteousness, he, 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 he took that gun out of the holster. He pulled Satan's favorite tool out of the toolbox. He hurled it away and he declared, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those of us who have identified with Jesus' death on the cross. For those of us who have said, yes, his blood is sufficient to pay for my sin. Satan, you can keep accusing me all you want. It won't stick. Whatever you accuse me of, I know what I did is even worse. And it doesn't matter. Because as long as I keep remembering the cross, your accusations have no power. They're talking about a guy who doesn't even exist anymore because I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. But that's not all that Jesus took away at the cross. He also took away our fear of death. Why do most people do what they do? If, if, you, if you just study human behavior, people in your life, friends, family, strangers that, that, that for some reason you have visibility into their life, ask yourself, why do they do the things they do? 80% of it, at least, talking about unbelievers, 80% of the reason we do what we do or more is because we're afraid to die. And if it's, Some people go to ridiculous lengths, almost everyone to some length, what they eat the job that, that they pursue, the education that they do or don't have, the choices that they make. Some to ridiculous lengths. I'm going to have my head frozen after I die. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna store my eggs and 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 whatever genetic material is necessary to clone me and transplant my brain into into a, a replica of my body. Android technology. The, the people are obsessed about this, pouring billions of dollars into it, in the hope of cheating death. Jesus already did that for us. Hebrews 2.14, at the cross, Jesus robbed death of its sting. And sting is, a, is, is an awkward word because death still hurts. People in our church family lost loved ones this week. We had some, some family of family go home to be with Jesus, and, and that, that still hurts. Separation is still hard. We still grieve, and, and that's okay. Jesus wept when Lazarus died, and Jesus wept knowing he would raise Lazarus from the dead. It's okay to grieve. The thing is, on this side of the cross, we don't grieve as those who have no hope because we know that for you and I who are in Christ Jesus, death is a change of address. I remember Pastor Chuck, the, the pioneer of our tribe, the one that God used to, 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 to get Calvary started. Before he died, he said, one of these days you're going to read in the paper, Chuck Smith died. He said, if you ever read that, don't believe it. I'm not, I'm not dead. My soul is going to live forever in the presence of Christ Jesus. So it's, it's not death. It's a change of address. How much time and energy can we get back and how much leverage does Satan lose when we remember that? When we realize deep down, because of the cross, we've been released, Hebrews 2.15, from the fear of death that held us captive before we believed. When we hang on to that, that's another tool out of Satan's toolbox. Another weapon out of its holster. And Jesus still isn't done. Romans 8.32. At the cross, Jesus also wrecked Satan's ability to make us doubt God. That's another one of his favorite schemes. That's his oldest scheme, in fact. Has God really said? That's vintage Satan from back in the garden. And to you and I, he says, does God really love you? On this side of the cross, we can look Satan in the eye and say, yeah, he really does. He's really said so. He's really shown so. Yeah, God loves me. And the reason I know he sent his son to die for me. How can anyone love me more than that? How can I possibly doubt his love after that? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Here's a fourth one. On this side of the cross, we can also look at Satan and say, not only does God love me, but I love him. And because I love him, I get to obey and serve him. On this side of the cross, I get to use the power he's given me, not you, Satan, but me, to stop sinning against him. One of the things that kept Satan in power over our lives was his ability to rob us of hope. Was his eagerness to whisper, you're a sinner, you're going to sin. 
You have to sin. Here it is. It's coming up now. You're going to fail again. You're going to do it again. You're going you're to slip again. You're going to mess up again because that's who you are. Because that's what you always do. And even if somehow you duck it this time, the next time's waiting around the corner and it's going to be twice as bad. And he was right. Every time he was right. But at the cross, Jesus not only showed us mercy, he gave us grace. Mercy's not getting what we deserved, right? Grace is getting what we didn't deserve. In his grace, we were not only forgiven of sin, but we were given a new heart. We were indwelt with his Holy Spirit. And we were imputed with his righteousness. And because of all that, we have, you and I who are in Christ Jesus, the ability to resist temptation. We can do what we were never able to do before we knew Jesus. We can say no to sin. Luke 10.18, Jesus declares, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And by extension, he's saying, and you guys are a lot like him, but you don't need to be anymore. Behold, Luke 10.19, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Serpents make us think of Satan, right? So scorpions must refer to demons. And we see that connection in the book of Revelation. I give you the authority to trample on our shared enemy, Jesus says, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus isn't saying, hey, go out handling snakes and scorpions. There are churches, we laugh, but there are churches who teach that and practice that, and people die every year because of that. No, Jesus was saying, when Satan says you're powerless to resist, when Satan brings temptation in your path, when Satan stirs up your flesh and your pride, guess what? You have power to be more than a conqueror. We were sinners, and because we were sinners, we had to sin. That's, that's the order. We were born with a sin nature, and because we were sinners, we sinned. That's what sinners do. Jesus changed our nature. We're no longer sinners. We're saints. Do we sometimes sin? Yes. But that doesn't make us sinners. We were never sinners because we sinned. We sinned because we were sinners. We're now saints who sin sometimes. Hopefully less and less and less as we mature in Christ. But even when we do, even when we sin, what are we? Forgiven. If you never memorize another Bible verse in your walk with the Lord, you need to know this one. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The verse before that, John says, don't bother saying that you don't sin, because everybody does. You don't have to lie to yourself or anybody else. We all sin, but Jesus made provision for that. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That means in Christ, Satan can't accuse us. In Christ, Satan can't use fear of death to manipulate us. In Christ, Satan can't... Prove to us that we have no power. Everything that Paul said to the Colossians, 
At the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan, pulled his teeth, declawed him, triumphed over him. Which, which leads us to ask, okay, so why didn't he finish the job? I mean, not just triumph over him. Why didn't Jesus take him out of this world? Wipe him out, destroy him. Because Paul says a couple different times, he's still the prince of the power of the air. He's still the ruler of this world. Why didn't Jesus finish the job? We know he will. Romans 16.20, the God of peace, Paul writes, will crush Satan under your feet shortly. I love that verse so much. Because you've got the God of peace crushing Satan. God of peace is crushing. How does that work? Because Satan destroys peace. He destroys our peace with God. He destroys our peace with each other. And so, yeah, a God who is righteous and glorious and good is going to deal with that eventually. And Paul tells us it will be soon. John tells us when it'll happen. He places it in time at the end of the millennial kingdom. Revelation 20.10, the devil will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, and along with his angels will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But that still begs the question, why not now? Why do we still have to deal with Satan today? Because for a defeated enemy, he's still pretty powerful. Knowing how the story ends, you'd hope that he'd just give up and go home. But denial is a powerful thing. If you've ever known an addict, if you've ever had an addict in your life, you've seen denial up close and personal. They're pulling down their life, they're, they're wrecking the lives of people around them, and they're insisting everything is fine. Just keep moving, nothing to see here. That's Satan. Pride is a powerful thing. You ever try to take somebody's keys away at a bar or at a party? I'm okay to drive, I'm just a little buzzed. I don't need to study. I don't need to ask for help. I, I've run equipment just like this. That's what I said before I drove the backhoe into a ditch. <laughs> Hydraulics are unforgiving. You take those two things together, it's easy to understand why Satan is the way he is. Years after World War II ended, you probably know this story. As, as gradually people went back to islands in the Pacific that had been the site of battles between Japanese forces and Allied forces, time and time again, Americans and, 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 and people from other nations going back to these islands would encounter Japanese forces living in caves, dwelling in huts, refusing to believe the war was over. Because in their mind, the, their, emperor were, were, their emperor was divine. And their victory was destined. Ah, that's Satan. He believes he's divine. He believes that he's like God or even better. And that ruling over creation is his destiny. Yeah, he's been tried and found guilty. John 16, 11, Jesus says he's been judged. He just refuses to believe it. Or maybe, worse still, maybe he does believe it, he knows his time is short, and he's determined to do as much damage as he can before Jesus comes back. Maybe he's just thrashing around like a wounded animal, determined to hurt as many people and rob heaven of as many souls while he still can. Either way, for Satan, the war is still ongoing, which means for us, yeah, it's still ongoing. 
And Satan's taking casualties, not only un, among unbelievers who don't understand what's going on, but among believers who should know what's going on. Believers who, despite Jesus' triumph, slip back into guilt and shame and find themselves worrying about death and doubting God's love and questioning their own power over sin. Which brings us back to, God, why didn't you in your mercy finish the job? Why leave Satan loose in the world to wreak havoc on believers and unbelievers alike? It's a good question. But I think Scripture gives us a good answer. What's the purpose of creation? Chief purpose of man, catechism kids, is to give glory to God. Colossians 1.16, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. For what purpose? To magnify God. Why the creation? Why the cross? It's all God's plan, purpose, to call attention to his greatness, to proclaim his goodness, to put on display his love. Goodness beyond measure, greatness beyond imagination, love beyond, well, certainly beyond Satan. We read in Isaiah and Ezekiel of Satan's arrogance. I can be like the Most High. We read in the Gospel God's response. God's response to Satan's boast, I can be like the Most High, we find in the Gospel. Because at the cross, Jesus says, can you do this? Can you create a universe knowing the people in it will rebel against you? Can you create a universe knowing that you'll pay the price? That you'll bear the wrath that's going to be necessary to redeem those people who rebel against you? Because God could. And God did. And the entire universe is created to put God's love on display. Think about in, in real life or more likely in movies or television, a, a, a scene where, where, where a, a beautiful, exquisite jewel is put on display. For me, it's usually in a heist movie. It's an Ocean's 13 thing or something, but... Here's this jewel, and it's, and, it's in a, and it's in a showcase. And the velvet background has been picked out to call attention to the luster and to the facets of the gem. And the lighting has been positioned to reflect in such a way that, that dazzle, from any angle that you look, the magnificence of this gem. And, and everything from the colors of the room to the flooring underneath your feet to the furnishings around the, around the edge. Everything is intended, everything is selected and, and installed with one purpose, to draw attention to this exquisite, magnificent jewel. That's the cross. The showcase, the exhibit, the installation, everything around it, all of creation, calls attention to the cross, Christ's suffering, Christ's death, all declaring the glory of God. 
Would God have been glorified if Jesus had risen from the dead and, 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 and when he did, Satan just blinked out of existence? Sure. Would God have been glorified if when Jesus rose from the dead or, or honestly at any other time, Satan came crashing down like the Hindenburg, leaving a canyon the size of the Grand Canyon and, and burned in a hole for a thousand years? Would that have glorified God? Sure. God has the power to do it. He has the right to do it. It would be perfectly just. And God is glorified in judgment. But what gives God even more glory? Letting the battle against Satan continue with believers like you and me standing against our enemy, revealing his weakness, declaring God's victory, calling attention to the gem. How did Jesus come? He came in humility. He came patiently. He came as a servant. He came suffering. He came doing all of the things Satan refused to do, refused to consider, refused to be. So, so, so question, how much greater does the cross appear? How much more glorious does Christ's sacrifice appear? How much more magnificent does God appear when we go to the cross and walk away with the same attributes as Jesus and the same confidence as Jesus on the same mission as Jesus and partake of the same victory as Jesus, each of us laying hold of a little piece of his triumph. So what happens when Satan says to us as believers, take revenge, get even, and we choose to forgive? God is glorified. What happens when Satan says, it's okay, everyone is doing it, satisfy your lust? And we say, no, I'm going to wait on the Lord because whatever he has is better. God is glorified. What happens when Satan says, you're strong, you've got this. And we say, no, I'd rather be weak and let God show himself mighty in me. God is glorified. When Satan says, rebel, and we choose to obey. When Satan says, think about yourself, and we focus on others. When Satan says, follow your heart, and we follow the Lord, God is glorified. You've heard it said, I'm sure, there's three tenses to our salvation. When we believed on Jesus Christ, we were justified. When we enter into his presence one day and our, and our redeemed body will be glorified. And in between, we're being sanctified. There's three tenses of Satan's demise, if you think about it. And it's parallel. He was defeated at the cross. And one day in the future, he's going to be delivered unto God's wrath. He's going to be chucked into the lake of fire. But in between, he's daily being destroyed by us. And as the body of Christ continues accomplishing that destruction, little by little by little, we manifest God's glory. Decision by decision, victory by victory, until Jesus returns. Even after he returns, during the tribulation, 
John gives us a vision, or perhaps it was something that he was brought forward in time to actually witness. But either way, in Revelation 12, he hears a loud voice from heaven saying, salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And see, what worked for those saints, or what will work, if, if, if you will, those, those future tribulation saints who are going to battle Satan, not just spiritually, but up close and personal, it'll work for us as well. They overcame him, they will overcome him. How? First, by the blood of the Lamb. And we know that. That's everything we're talking about tonight. But the reason we're talking about it tonight is we so easily forget. That's why Jesus gave us communion. So that we'll remember. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. Remember and don't forget what I did on the cross. Remember and don't forget what was defeated at the cross. Sin and death and Satan. So that when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt that's within us, upward we can look, we can remember, we can see Jesus there. And we can say, yeah, he made an end to to, to all of our sin. A sinless Savior died. That's what happened 2,000 years ago. And because he did, our souls are counted free. God's justice perfectly satisfied. Because he looked at Jesus and saw us and punished him in our place. He looks at us today and sees Jesus, wealthy and righteous. Satan's going to try to argue with that. He's going to try to deny that. He's going to try to sow doubt about that. He's a dead angel walking, but he's still spewing lies. He's going to say, yeah, that used to be true. That was true when you were first saved. That's not true anymore. That's not who who you are. It's who you were. That's not who God is. It's who you want him to be. God wants to do that for you, Satan might say, but he can't because you're such a stinking sinner. How do we overcome those lies? Because of the blood. We remember the blood. We remember it's sufficient. We remember it's impossible to outsin God's grace. We remember Romans 8. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. In other words, nothing, not even we ourselves, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb, the same blood that you and I celebrate tonight, by the word of their testimony. They made it their habit in a season of unprecedented persecution. My verb tenses are all tangled up. I'm going to stop trying. (laughs) It's written in God's eyes. It's as if it's already happened. So we're going to go with that. And what did they do? They prayed again and again in Revelation and in the prophets. We see the saints praying. God, your will be done. God, use my life. God, glorify yourself in me. God, show yourself mighty. 
they chose. The end of the passage that I read, they said they regarded not even their own lives because they knew to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. They prayed, they chose. They traded willingly this life for the next life. Sinful for the pure. The things that are good for things that are better. The comfort and safety of this existence for the security and perfection of the next one. And the third thing we see again and again and again, those tribulation saints warring with Satan personally, physically, as they worshipped. They made it their practice to gather and to declare in song that God is everything that Satan isn't. The beginning of the end for Satan is when he said, I want to be worshipped. One problem, the moment he said that, he became wicked. And for untold millennia since then, creation has been defined by that dichotomy, Satan's wickedness and God's holiness. If we want to partake of Christ's victory, if we want to rejoice in his triumph, if we want to remember who we are, if we want to shine light upon the cross, the very best thing we can do is lift our hearts and our hands and our voices to our risen Lord, proclaiming reminding, remembering what happened on the cross. Lord, we we like words. Satan likes words. He uses them to tell lies. And we like to use words to assert our strength, our confidence, our knowledge, our power. They're just different ways of saying pride. And so, Lord, we commit this time to hearing your words and to declaring your word that we would remember the ordinance that you gave us on the night that you were betrayed. Your body broken. Your blood poured out so that sin might be forgiven and so that you might destroy the works of the devil. Lord, how do we participate in that triumph? How do we partake more fully of that victory? Speak to us now according to your perfect will.